0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We look today at the ongoing massive protest movements in Chile and Lebanon, where for more than two weeks the mobilization and demonstrations have spread in breadth and depth. In Chile, 1.2 million took to the streets on October 25th, and in Lebanon, protesters formed a human chain from one end of the country to another, in both places protesting the inequity of the status quo, a generalized protest against neoliberalism and an unjust order. We begin in Chile with Pablo Abufom, whose article, It's Not About 30 Pesos, It's About 30 Years, appeared in Jacobin Magazine. Anger began when the Piñera government raised metro prices 30 pesos and student protests caused the closing of metro stations, only increasing the participation of workers and the broader population in ever-larger protests. The government called a state of emergency and curfew, bringing the military and carabineros into the streets to repress the movement. The demands now are for the end of the Piñera government, a new constituent assembly, and a new constitution, and as Pablo Abufom says a new system. We then turn to Lebanon for a deeper look at their October revolution and uprising of dignity with SOA's professor and author Gilbert Ashkar. The protests in Beirut began with attacks on WhatsApp calls, but that was only the trigger, and Ashkar says the massive demonstrations have since grown into a call for revolution. We'll get his analysis and more when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. October 2019 will be remembered as the time of massive mobilizations around much of the globe against inequality, inequity, privatization, unresponsive and unrepresentative governments and political parties and leaders. One hundred years since the insurrectionary general strikes in at least seven cities around the globe, the October risings of 2019 will be seen as a new chapter in the struggle for human dignity and democracy from below. That takes us to Chile and Lebanon. For the last two weeks, Chile has had massive demonstrations that have only grown with more than a million out on Friday, October 25th, despite a state of emergency declared by the Piñera government, a curfew, and the military in the streets, and perhaps 19 killed, hundreds wounded thousands arrested. Whereas the anger began over an increase in metro fares, the protest movement has now broadened to longstanding economic and social concerns over wages, pensions, health care, student debt, and transport prices. People are now demanding the end of the Piñera government and a new constitution, an end to the neoliberal economic and political structure put in place by Pinochet and only ameliorated, but not dismantled, by successive democratic and socialist governments. We're going to be speaking in Chile today to Pablo Abufom. He's a freelance translator and activist with the movement for a new pension system in Chile. He's been out on the streets all week for the last two weeks, I should say. He's also a member of Solidaridad, which is an anti-capitalist feminist Movement and his article in Jacobin that appeared last week is called It's Not About 30 Pesos, It's About 30 Years. Welcome, Pablo. i so good to talk to you.
1: Hi, Susie. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's just go now and begin by describing this massive, huge protest on Friday. And then maybe we can go into what triggered it and who was out there.
1: Yeah, well, last Friday, 25th, was uh, definitely a historical day for Chile. This was probably the biggest, most massive protest, march, demonstration, however you want to call it, because it had many... Expressions. The press is saying that 1,200,000 people were out in the street in Santiago only. You have to include many thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands in other cities, big cities in Chile. When we were in the streets that day, you could feel a sense of hope and also of, of uh, anger, and people are definitely demanding radical change in terms of the way life and work and our general existence is organized in Chile. There's no one set of demands, but you have a lot of people that are, that have been demanding in an organized or unorganized way, a new pension system, better wages, uh, an actual public healthcare system, free education, and many other things. So, you you had a, a an interesting mix of people who are members of uh, unions and, and political organizations and, and some parties. But then you had a, the majority of the people in the streets were just regular workers and young people and, and elders that were basically protesting their conditions of life.
0: Could we go just for a moment, Pablo Buffon, because when you described how many people were in the streets in Santiago alone, You know, I was doing a calculation in my head in a country of, what, 17 and a half, 18 million people in Chile now. If you were to translate that to the United States, it would be almost as if 18 to 20 million people were in the streets here. And I think people should just think about that for a moment to get a sense of the gargantuan size and import of this huge mobilization. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit of how, you know, what triggered it. We mentioned the metro price rise, but then how it kind of just mushroomed. And as you mentioned, the breadth of discontent grew and just brought everyone into the street. So maybe we could start with go back to that.
1: Right. There's definitely a, an accumulated anger throughout the years. And the analysts on TV are calling this a crisis of expectations, people who have been living for too long in a democratic government and living in this, what they call the the Chilean miracle in, of the economy. But this is not exactly a psychological thing. It's not something that people experience in their minds only. This is definitely a crisis of the regime that we're living. And that's basically the neoliberal policies that were implemented by the Pinochet dictatorship during the 70s and 80s. And so...
0: I saw a great poster from the march that said, neoliberalism began here and it ends here. And that ties in with the, you know, the title of your article, which is taken from something that someone said, not 30 pesos, but 30 years. Maybe you you started to talk about that a little bit, Pablo, but could you elaborate?
1: Yeah, so... That poster that was uh, all over the web, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. It's basically a reference of that crisis of neoliberal regime, economic, political crisis in Chile. It's interesting that it was, I would say, it's it's a huge mistake by the government that actually sparked the rebellion. People were protesting the repression of the high school students who were protesting against the hike in the, the public transport fair. But then the government decided to declare a state of emergency, and that brought not just the 30 years of a democratic, liberal democratic regime, but actually the entire history of oppression by the military and repressive governance in Chile. So as of today... It's not just about 30 years, it's about the entire history of colonial and capitalistic existence in Chile. Because we've seen the military being used by the government of Chile in massacres, not just during the dictatorship, but also before that. And so this seems to be a, a, a very profound crisis in Chile.
0: Even the words Piñedo chose to use were so horribly reminiscent of what Pinochet Pinochet said almost word for word. We're at war against a powerful and relentless enemy that respects nothing and no one. And I think, you know, Pinochet used almost the same words to describe an enemy. And as you said, to have the Chilean military in the streets, the Fuerza Armada, and to have the Carabineros, you know, that with their violent past as a sort of emblem or symbol is, is really awful. And Chile is not at war with any other country nor has it been when they're called out in the street it's you know civil unrest it's it's against yeah. their own people
1: and also we hadn't seen a state of emergency declared in the context of civil unrest or protests last time we had a state of emergency was during the earthquake in the aftermath of the earthquake in 2010 right so it was definitely for my generation i was born in the in the 80s so i didn't directly experience the dictatorship but we have that intergenerational drama inherited from our parents from our parents and, and older generations but for our generation it was the first time we had a state of emergency in that context it was the first time we experienced the, the curfew which mm-hmm. was something that was very common in during the dictatorship right. and this time people were not afraid so and people defied the curfew that was declared in last saturday and people were in the street just just being there and, you know, banging empty, empty pots, that is something that is very common in Chile during the protest, something that comes from the dictatorship too. So the resemblances are everywhere. And that tells you a lot about the continuity of, between the dictatorship and the democratic regime. So when we see a state repression, and, and not just the police and, and the riot police, but also the military being used against people who are protesting, basically their life the conditions, is that we're seeing that that's the military counterpoint of a capitalist democracy and the way the, that capitalist democracy has existed in Chile in the past 30 years. So when you connect that with the fact that people are not in the streets demanding one specific thing, and that every attempt of the government to solve the crisis, first, they, they announced that they were going to freeze the metro prices. Mm-hmm. Then, and people were still protesting, and then right after that, they declared the court curfew. Then they announced that they were going to build work on a, a new social agreement, a new social agenda with some of the political establishment parties. People were still in the streets. Then they used the media to show that everything was normal and then try to the, sort of a normalizing agenda everywhere in the media and people were still everywhere so it's like they can't count on their regular weapons literal weapons but also metaphorical ones to actually block social change which is something that's the, that the that may be the most relevant feature of our political regime is that social change is completely blocked not just by the government but also by the the whole set of institutions of the state.
0: One of the things, Pablo Abulfaz, is that you said that this protest that really is about inequality and you know the traits of neoliberalism as it has existed in the last thirty years began with the Pinochet government, but that it also called into question capitalism as a whole and colonialism. So it goes back, goes into something far deeper in a way, and I would like to hear that because. Many people, you know, around the globe who are have been going into the streets are doing so because after the Great Recession of now a decade ago, the only gains that have come have gone to the top and not to the population anywhere, literally. And so there's a sense of, you know, people are fed up with that. But in Chile, you're saying it's going a lot deeper. And I'd like, maybe if you could, just to spend a moment talking about what politically relevant traits of neoliberalism are motivating people into the streets and motivating the movement. And, and would you call it, like you said, it's anti-capitalist. Is it because people see how privatization has created inequality, not efficiency, as it's promised? What's really driving this?
1: There doesn't seem to be a clear line of discourse or an interpretation that can actually explain the whole movement, the whole revolt. Mm-hmm. You can just try to look back the last 30 years and then just see, I mean, just see the, the data. Half of the workers in Chile earns less than than the poverty line. Uh, 50% of people have a, a pension that is less than $200. Mm. And then the, the level of debt that we live in, that's basically the way that we can survive. I mean, a, a lot of people buy their, I don't know, like leisure and go to the, I don't know, buy cars or or, st- or other stuff, but they buy their food and their clothing with credit cards. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically the way the, the so-called Chilean miracle has had the chance to survive. And so it's not that people in the streets are rejecting capitalism in the words they use, but if you put all the things together... It's basically the way capitalism organizes our social life and the political institutions that people are protesting. The fact that healthcare is privatized in such a way that not just it's expensive, but also that public funds, the the money that comes from, from our work through taxes goes to private institutions because they organize the whole system in that way. The same happens with the pensions. So that means that As I was saying, it's capitalism as an interpretation that you could say that people are protesting. People are just fed up. The most common slogan, besides el pueblo unido jamás será vencido, the people united will never be defeated, which again has a a strong historical resemblance with the popular unity period. The most common chanting and slogan is Chile has awakened, Mm. that we were in a deep slumber and now we're awake.
0: I wanted to ask you, Pablo, because Piñera has come out offering concessions and people are not accepting that as nearly enough, firing his cabinet, saying, he'll, as you mentioned, that he will rescind the you know, the fare increase, increase pensions, but not enough. I listened to a couple of other interviews in which people were saying, we just don't want Piñera. We want the government to fall. But even that, it sounds to me like you're saying, Pablo Abufoma, that that also would not be enough. But, you know, over the past, and you st- started talking about the student movement that, you know, that was so prominent in the last, what, eight years to nine years. But the leaders of that movement, Camila, others from the Communist Party, and and then you also have the Socialist Party that have been compromised in a way because they have, you know, been elected into positions in the government. And I'm wondering, you know, given Chile's History, which is a, a society that respects political parties, everybody identifies or used to at least identify with a political party, and now we're hearing nothing. You know, the Socialist Party is part of the was part of the Concertacion. Communist Party seems to have grassroots, you know, uh, strength. There's feminist organizations. You mentioned that the workers were out into the streets, and we know workers have been on strike as well who's representing or what political forces are there? Is this the Frente Amplio? Maybe just explain for our listeners the sort of political landscape in terms of organized political parties.
1: Yes. So we had until, I would say, 10 years ago, we have a a very, it's very similar to the United States. We have a two-party system. Mm -hmm. And and the the difference maybe is that we have two coalition systems. So we have a right-wing coalition with the parties that were Formed during the dictatorship, that were their political base of support, and then we have the part, some of the parties that were old parties like the Socialist Party and the Christian Democrats that formed the the center left coalition that ruled the country for twenty years after the dictatorship, and then the Communist Party, a party that joined the Concertacion parties for the last Bachelet government between twenty fourteen and twenty seventeen, and. That was an interesting turn to the left for the Concertación, but also an interesting turn to the right for the Communist Party that joined neoliberal government. And then during that time, because the, the Communist Party left a space for a more consistent left, and also after the 2011 student mobilization that created new leadership, new, new political ideas and sort of revitalized the, the left The Frente Amplio was born, the broad front. And the Frente Amplio is also a coalition. It's not just one single party. And it goes from liberal parties, progressive parties, to more classic Marxist Leninist groups, and also some groups coming from this new left that was born during the recent cycle of protest, especially from the student movement. And the thing is that This moment that we're living now, this revolt or this uh, even a rebellion, it doesn't really have one representative or any representative right now. The parties are trying, the big trade unions are trying, but it seems that precisely because of the structural adjustment programs and the way the labor market was reorganized in Chile during the dictatorship and the way unions were destroyed physically and politically, by the dictatorship, and and also by the democratic government, that the nature of society in Chile, the fragmented existence of the working class in Chile, which is the majority of the country, it seems that there's no space for traditional representation right now. And so in the past five to 10 years, new actors and new social movements have emerged that have been able to represent some of the issues that are felt deeply by the people. For instance, the feminist movement has had a strong presence in the past two years, protesting and and rejecting not just neoliberal policies and not just violence against women and the LGBT community, and not just demanding free abortion, which is something that's been a historical demand, but also talking about everything from a feminist perspective. The feminist movement has been an interesting new actor in the past years in terms of connecting different demands that are coming from, from the people. And the, the feminist movement right now has been able to connect those demands. And you know, earlier this year, in the March 8 general feminist strike that was organized by the feminist movement in Chile, that was the biggest march before the march that we had last week. So it seems that this year has been a, an ongoing mobilization process and that the feminist movement was able to gain momentum and, and gather that strength in a specific day by way of connecting those demands in terms of housing, pensions, environmental issues, education, etc., and of course, violence against women and the LGBT community. And now we're seeing the result of maybe we're seeing the result of that connection, of people seeing that there's not just single issues or isolated problems. And when you see that people are not responding to the government concessions, maybe that means that people are understanding that it's not about small concessions or just superficial changes, but it's actually about a change of regime, a political, social, economic environmental regime.
0: This is very exciting. And I want to just take it back for a second to talk about the Piñera regime, because One of the shocking things, and certainly for the whole community around the world who, you know, saw Chile as a touchstone during the popular unity for this uh, kind of broad democratic socialism, as we would call it now in Bernie Sanders terms. But socialism and with organs of democracy that was crushed so brutally and to see the military in the streets. And as I said before, with Piñera using some of the same words. And then, you know, to see the kinds of human rights violations that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. And I see that more demonstrations are being called this week now. Because of that and that opposition lawmakers are charging Piñera with violating the Constitution and permitting human rights violations during these street protests, which have left, you know, somewhere between we hear 17 to 19 dead and the arrest of maybe 7,000 people. Can you talk a little bit, Pablo, about the repression and about the human rights violations and what that's done to even, you know, stoke this fury further?
1: Yeah. So, uh, as I said before, the government, only after hours of people revolting downtown in Santiago, the government decided to declare a state of emergency only hours after the people were revolting downtown. And that meant the military were back in the streets. And in Chile, we are very, I would say we are very used to violent police repression during marches and demonstrations, uh, most of them, and in the police provoking uh, confrontations with the workers who were marching during many demonstrations or other, other demonstrations in, in the city. And so I'm going to tell this in, like, personally. I, when I went to bed on Friday after the state of emergency was declared, I thought, how many people are going to die today because the military are, are in the streets? tonight. Mm. And we saw the the days after the state of emergency was declared that the military was actually killing people, shooting people. Mm. And as more and more cities were declared under state of emergency, that started to rise. And also having social media and cell phones and smartphones right now makes the difference. So I don't think that the military officers and officials and the authorities don't see that, but it seems that they were operating with the same mindset, that same military mindset of the dictatorship, which is basically impunity, Mm -hmm. that they can do whatever they want and actually torture people. There was an investigation about torture center downtown in Santiago, actually in a subway station, which is a a sort of a, a very perverse turn and twist to the events, yeah, very symbolic. And and the cops and the military were shooting people directly. And so one of the common things that we've seen that we've seen in the in the television and, and in social media mostly is people were losing their sight because they got shot in the eye by the the cops. And so right now we have a, a committee of the human rights, the UN Human Rights uh, Commission, who are visiting Chile sent by former President Bachelet, who's now the commissioner, the UN Commissioner for Human Rights, who are in Chile now investigating and meeting with people and meeting with the Human Rights Institute in Chile to investigate and hopefully pursue the violations of human rights. I mean, if you see the the, the Human Rights Institute in Chile was putting out every day different reports. And the last report that we saw today in the morning, it's that a 1,000 and 132 people were wounded and attended and went to a hospital. And more than 3,000 people were detained by the police,
2: Mm.
1: including over 300 children. And so we see all the cruelty of the military forces in Chile and the riot police. We have seen all that. And one thing that I want to make clear is that we hadn't seen this level of violence in the big cities in Chile. But there's indigenous land in Chile that it's been occupied by the Chilean state for over 500 years. And that's a military militarized zone. It's always been since the the birth of our nation, it has always been a militarized zone and it's continuously under attack, not just by the military, but also by the the guards uh, of the, the, the forest companies that are occupying those lands in the South. So, Again an interesting resemblance with what the, the Chilean regime it's about and not just the past thirty years.
0: We're going to have to end it in a few moments, and I'm very grateful that you, st- you know, that you stayed for all of this, Pablo Abufon. But maybe you could just end it by talking about or speculating on the outcomes of this, you know, spectacular few weeks of growing protests and a huge social movement. You've talked about its sort of leaderless quality, but that doesn't mean that it isn't focused in some ways on all of the, you know, ill effects of inequality and lack of justice. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you see this now in the weeks to come and in the time to come.
1: Well, the, the fact that it, it's leaderless movement, it sort of tells you about the political limitations of the Chilean constitution and the Chilean political system. That's definitely a, a feature of the Chilean society that has been everywhere in the news and, and also by analysts and protesters themselves. So people are basically demanding a change in the constitution through a constituent assembly. That's one thing that's on the table every day. People are talking about that. So because it seems that the traditional representation of political parties and even, and even some of the, the big trade unions, it's not being effective. The government has already called the union leaders to, to sit on the table and negotiate with them. But my, if I have to speculate, my impression is that that's not going to be enough either. And so in terms of what comes now, what comes next, I think that the, the idea of a popular constituent assembly, it, maybe it's the moment for that now. People are, have been calling for a new constitution since 1980 when the Pinochet constitution was the, signed. But now we have a different scenario. We have people who are not really believing in the political system, in the political institutions. And not, not because they say so, but because when you see the, the government measures that uh, are taken by the government, people are not responding to that. People are, don't, don't think that's effective. And, and one final thing is that what we've seen uh, recently in the past week is that people are organizing in their own neighborhoods. People are organizing in their neighborhoods through assemblies in Santiago and other cities to confront state repression, to organize the supplies that maybe were lost when supermarkets were burned down or looted, and also organizing to discuss the kind of society that they want. And this is a very interesting process because it seems that we are under, uh, we're undergoing a, some sort of constituent moment that may result in a regime change in a new Chile. That's being optimistic when we see that the DNA of the political establishment is basically to send the military to block any sort of social change. We see that the the possibility of an authoritarian turn with more repression and more similarities to the dictatorship is not completely out of the picture.
0: Well. I want to thank you so much, Pablo Abufom, and obviously we're going to have to revisit this because so much more is going to unfold in the days to come, but I want to thank you for your insightful views and participation over the last couple of weeks in what we're calling, what, this Chilean uprising. And Pablo Abufom is a freelance translator and activist with the movement for a new pension system in Chile, but he's been out on the streets, as I mentioned. He's a member of Solidaridad, which is an anti-capitalist feminist movement, and you You can read his article in Jacobin called It's Not About 30 Pesos, It's About 30 Years. Pablo Abufom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. We'll talk
1: later, I hope.
0: Yes, we will. Thanks so much. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Gilbert Ashkar with us to discuss the ongoing revolution or uprising that's been going on since October 17th in Lebanon. Gilbert Ashkar is a professor of development studies and international relations at SOAS, the University of London. That's the school of, I think, Asian and African studies or just African studies?
2: Oriental and African. Oriental,
0: there you go. Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And his publications, among others, many others, include a recent Le Monde Diplomatique article from June of 2019 that you can look up called The Seasons After the Arab Spring. And of course, they put the question into it: Will there be a counter-revolution this time? And Gilbert's books include "Morbid Symptoms," "Relapse in the Arab Uprising," that was published by Stanford University Press in 2016. "The People Want," a radical exploration of the Arab uprising, Marxism or Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism, and the Arabs in the Holocaust. Many others. And I'm very pleased to have you with us, Gilbert.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. So,
0: so let's begin. So I see that the uprising, massive protests in Lebanon are being called Lebanon's October Revolution or the uprising of dignity. There's a wonderful quote in an article in the New York Times from someone on the streets who said this is about people taking back their dignity because it is so humiliating to be a citizen of of Lebanon under this ruling class. And of course, we've seen the streets exploding in massive protest for more than a week now, almost two weeks, with more than a million demonstrating in a country of four million. If we translated that elsewhere, we might get a sense of the perspective. And they're protesting against dire economic conditions, austerity, corruption. Demanding the leader step down, and this was sparked when the government announced a tax on WhatsApp calls. But the demonstration has since grown into, as as we said, a call for revolution. And even though the government then stepped back its uh, or revoked its tax, and the Prime Minister Hariri has announced a package of economic reforms, the protesters are continuing to call for his ouster. And this, of course, is not alone. This is like a, a new wave of protests that's engulfing not just Lebanon, but many other spots in the world, mostly to protest neoliberal policies of austerity, cuts, privatization that is contributed to stagnation, and stoked even higher levels of inequality and that have been demanded dogmatically by the IMF. So I want to start today, Ashkar, with perhaps your view of, let's call it an overview of what's going on, and then we can go into more specifics.
2: Sure.
0: Were you surprised by this level of uprising? You've been writing about uprisings for a long time. Did this one take you by surprise, and how do you characterize it?
2: I mean, it is surprising for Lebanon not in the sense that, of course, uh, as you e- even mentioned by quoting someone in the New York Times, the reasons for rebellion in Lebanon are, are too many, of course. This is a country of, uh, where you've had, uh, as you mentioned, very crude economic policies of a uh, very wild capitalist character, neoliberalism uh, at, it, at its uh, worst. And the standard of, of living of the people have been uh, deteriorating. You have a massive impoverishment and uh, an increasing uh, part of the population under the, the poverty line. And on the other end, you have uh, extremely wealthy uh, people, ostentatiously rich, and uh, with with a recent anecdote of, of the present prime minister. Having been exposed through uh, trials in South Africa for having given as a gift to a woman with whom he had a relation there sixteen million dollars wow you know that 's a nice gift yeah so when when people reach such dues and they know their own conditions and they, you know they have a lot of trouble uh, making ends meet, you know it create a huge sense of frustration on top of which. The government has been so stupid uh, to the point of coming with a new budget with a whole set of new taxes, but they are extremely regressive taxes, you know, down the taxes on consumption, or on basic things, I mean, putting more and more weight on, on the poorest segments of the population. But symbolically, what made people explode was that included even a tax On phone communication through WhatsApp, you know, through the internet. Right. uh, Which people resort to, of course, massively because it's extremely expensive to use the phone. Even the mobile phone, the cost per unit is very high, whereas when you have these uh, phone through the internet devices, it doesn't cost you anything because that's part of the, of the data you you have with your uh, subscription. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to tax that. I mean, imagine so. So that was really what <laughs> I mean. The, the final uh, provocation that everybody rebel, revolt, and just add that. So from that angle, that's not surprising at all and that fits within the, the general pattern as you said in the beginning very mm-hmm. rightly of uh, on the one hand global revolts uh, we are you know since the great the recession of 2008 we have entered into a very sharp crisis of one oh, what I would call the neoliberal stage of capitalism, because that looks very much as a full stage of capitalism since the 80s. We have been in Havana with the dominance of a certain paradigm, and this has got into crisis. And we see the crisis now all over the globe in the form of revolts. We have seen also that same crisis in the form of of a a rise a completely unexpected rise of of radical left forces in the united states and the uk two countries which were seen as strongholds of uh, of global (laughs) reaction and uh, where were you you i mean no one would have expected that and we have also seen the effects of all that with the rise of the far right globally so from all these perspectives that wasn't what you had in Lebanon isn't surprising not more surprising than what you had in Chile or wherever you know we have these phenomena now all over the globe however yes it was very surprising in one sense in the sense that in that country you have had a powerful antidote to class struggle which is sectarianism this is a country where the political system is based on sectarian distribution of, of spoils, if you want, the state, and this sectarianism is, of course, is maintained and exploited by the ruling elites of the country. We, I mean, this is the main ideology and ideological bond with which they maintain their dominance over their constituencies and sectarianism has been uh, systematically used in the history of lebanon to deviate any episode of rising class struggle into you know into dividing the people on the basis of their uh, sectarian affiliations this has been systematic and every attempt Throughout the history of the country, I mean especially the the modern history of the country at uh, unifying the workers, the laborers, the the society, if you want, on social basis was disrupted by using, by resorting to, to that. And that's what is surprising about what is happening. It is that this uprising managed for the first time in a really massive Way because we've had a few years ago social protests, but they were much more limited. And here we have a real massive revolt of the population, uh, and that covered the whole country, all the regions of the country, of all sects, and against all the sectarian leaderships that you have in the country. None was left aside. One of the slogans was very clearly, denouncing them all and insisting on all all of them it's uh, like the famous vayan todos yeah and that is there, there's something common here so it's it's a revolt against them all and really a sense of us against them we the people against them the elite those who are exploiting us those who are fooling us by their sectarian discourses and you know keeping us awareness of our real interests, and then just exploiting us. So this is what is really amazing about that, and that's a great step forward.
0: Okay, yes. uh, before you go into that, I just because there's so much that you just went into, Gilbert, and I just wanted to say a couple of things. One is that on the issue of the ability to divide the Lebanese population successfully up until now on sectarian basis. There was a quote that I also saw in an article, I probably in the New York Times, I don't remember exactly where. We are all Lebanese on the streets. We are not Shiite or Sunni or Christians. We are citizens. That's one. Yeah. And that people are aware that they've been divided along religious and class backgrounds in the past and saying no more as you just mentioned and then there was the also the other great quote about this is a revolution of dignity and against you know them as you've said and it's also interesting that you quoted you know the rise of a left worldwide in response to the continuing failed policies of neoliberalism and there was a very interesting article in the guardian this week from the former head of the bank of england i think it was who said you know that he was trying to persuade countries that this dogmatism on the same old policies of austerity and social uh-huh. spending cuts uh-huh. has been a failure. He's not working, and yet they're seeing no creativity. Well, we are seeing some creativity, of course, here in the United States with Sanders and and the others uh-huh. who've been elected, and they're proposing a massive infrastructure spending and, and some renationalization, in fact, on the Green New yeah. Deal. But I don't want to go into that too much because I want you to talk about Lebanon, um, specifically where I understand the, and you mentioned the level of unemployment is at almost 40 percent, but there's another area where the population could be divided. I don't know if it and That is the one and a half million Syrian refugees and another half mm. a million Palestinian refugees in this very small country. Has that also been a source of division or is that... Seemingly normal. I'd love to hear that, and then of course the final thing to bring into it has been climate change and the fires in Lebanon. I don't know if that is much, if that is also part of, of this sort of constellation of grievances that have brought people to the streets. But I'd like to hear your views.
2: Sure, I start by by the last one. Of course, there. I mean, the environmental damage is is uh, gigantic in Lebanon. And the, these fires that you had that were part of that, they, they very much emphasized uh, the negligence, the neglect by the state of the, the key needs of the country, that the state was, quote, completely unprepared in the face of these fires, although they are not completely new. And so, again, the people had this, this conscience of, of the fact that the rulers are only concerned about money-making, not about the interests of the people and uh, the basic needs of the country. And another aspect of that, and that's also terrible, is the garbage crisis, which has been recurrent. Mm. And that was the, the reason why you had, a few years ago, a major wave of protest albeit not the same scale of the present one. And you have uh, accumulation of garbage and all that, which is uh, extremely de- detrimental to the, the environment in Lebanon and uh, the, the source of a lot of worries, uh, health worries. And, I mean, this is a country that is being turned into an unhealthy country, whereas it had everything it takes from the climatic point of view and all that to be the opposite. So yeah, that's part of this big revolt and this, this rejection of uh, of all that. Whether you, you call it dignity or whatever, I mean people are seeing that they are living in a country that is just sinking. It is deteriorating and the only people who are happy with that are those who are making millions hmm. on the back of, of the, the poor people. That's what what's happening. Now, the, your first question just remind me. Just, I was talking uh, about
0: the level of, first of all, the, whether or yes. not, given all these grievances, the number of refugees in the country, which yes, yes. amount to, Absolutely. what, almost half, sure. whether yeah, that's that would, also a cause for division.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the Palestinian presence in Lebanon has been reduced after the years of the civil war and all that and very much subdued so it hasn't been the source of uh, of real uh, tensions uh, in the last years except very recently when there were attempts of uh, new uh, labor law depriving the Palestinians of the very few uh, abilities they have in lebanon and this led to a movement of the palestinians themselves Protesting against that, so it wasn't really affecting the Lebanese side. But uh, you, you, I mean, you had a Palestinian revolt, a revolt of Palestinians in Lebanon, that preceded what's going on now. The Syrian case is different because, first of all, that's a, a very new wave of refugees. It's a result of the civil war in Syria, so they they started uh, coming into Lebanon after the the beginning of the civil war in that uh, country, which which is by the end of 2011, early 2012. And uh, this led to a massive influx of refugees. So you said the country is a country of 4 million inhabitants, but that's without counting the presence of the Syrians. Uh The Syrian refugees were estimated at almost 2 million. So that is like uh, 50% of the population being added. Just imagine that, uh, as you said at the beginning, you, you were comparing the, the number of demonstrators to the population yeah. and uh, s- saying, well, think of those proportions in other countries, and you know, or certainly men, the United States. Well, think of that in terms of refugees. And when you see everything that, the fa- that Trump is doing against the migrants and refugees, right. this discourse of hatred, Against what is extremely minimal compared to the, the, what you had in Lebanon, you you, you get the, the the picture of of what there is there, and indeed we had our Trumps. <laughs> One specialist in that is the uh, very much like Trump. You know, you have the the president, and uh, his uh, son-in-law in is the kind of key uh, architect of the policies of the government. Wow. Uh, and this guy uh, specializes in a discourse of hatred, anti-Palestinian, anti-Syrian, anti-everything, and the one big oddity of all that is that this guy and and, and the president, they are the ally, the Christian allies of of Hezbollah, a party whose ideological legitimation is in large part based on uh, uh, opposing uh, the West and Israel. So you have these these contradictions uh, uh, with uh, with. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, uh, people, as I was just saying, I mean, uh, opposing Israel. On the other hand, their allies opposing the Palestinians I and mean, with a almost uh, racist discourse. So you've had that, and these, these were also attempts at dividing uh, uh, the, the society. And this is what this this um, ongoing uprising has swept away. Uh, <clears throat> that's absolutely. Uh, 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 amazing to 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 see that and, and th- th- as we, we started speaking uh, i mean about what 's surprising about it that 's really surprising, and of course one can only hope that it can uh, uh, be uh, sustainable and that the the movement manages to 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 find a way to organize and to have a genuinely democratic organization, a grassroots one.
0: Before we Uh, go into uh, that part of it, though, Gilbert, I mean, I really want to, that's going to be the next area of questions I want to ask you about how we, you know, how you see a way out of it. But I just wanted to go back to something that. I think you said in your article in Le Monde Diplomatique, which is that, um, you know, the IMF's insistence on um, state disengagement, a central role for the private sector, and Mm -hmm. social cuts and and, uh, austerity, as we're now seeing, has provoked worldwide revolt. And certainly this has been one of the cases in Lebanon, but in your article, you you pointed to the only place where the government is able to impose this is in, you know, Al-Sisi's regime in in uh Egypt because the repression is to that degree and I want to go back to Lebanon now so in other words you all, all can see the shock but not the therapy but it can't be implemented without protests now and so you've talked about this government in Lebanon that sounds like it's incompetent nepotistic uh confused and just out for self-enrichment is this also a government that you could see cracking down on that kind in that kind of way, and so that leads to what next? From the
2: point of view of the government or the point of view of the uprising?
0: Well, I'd like to see, like, first what you think the government might do, and then what people in the streets, you know, should be doing Uh, or are doing in order to counter Yeah.
2: Well, the government, uh, basically, they had to retreat in the face of this big movement. And since it's a government of, you know, it's a kind of... uh, of a uh, uh, coalition of, uh, of, of, uh, of 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 politically uh, op- i mean opposed forces uh, they are together in the government and this is a, this is kind of an unstable and tense coalition uh, every uh, component uh, tried to you know uh, uh, lay the blame at the feet of the others so, uh, we've heard, and so it was quite funny to see, uh, the, all these components of, of government, each one saying, well, uh, we agree with the, the, the protesters and all that. Um, uh, uh, of course it was fake. I mean, no one was really, has been really convinced, uh, of that. And that's why this, this insistence of, of reject, rejecting them all is, is very good because that includes. Uh, some people who now pretend to be on the side of the, the protesters, uh, uh, whereas they have been in government and part of, of this uh, rotten structure for for, for, for very long. Uh, um, so the, now the, the issue is that uh, um, the, the, there has been a pressure from the street on the government to resign. Right. And the counter pressure is coming from Hezbollah. And uh, today, as we're speaking, I mean, a few hours ago, uh, the, the the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, made a, gave a discourse, a speech, which is an insistence on the fact that the government should stay in place and that uh, uh, I mean, a rejection of uh, of uh, of this uh, the, the 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 mass protests. Uh, basically, wow. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Hezbollah has and its ally uh Amal, and also the, the 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 president as i mentioned i mean um uh, this is a kind of coalition of sectarian forces uh they 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 have uh taken the most uh, 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 so the firmest position against the 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 mass protest uh, uh even firmer than the 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 prime minister whom we, we mentioned uh this uh, big capitalist link to the saudi uh, kingdom uh, who who uh, uh, has been himself a, a key target of uh, of of the whole uh, the whole protest so now where they are going what they are <laughs> what they will be doing and maybe is also very in that it's you... difficult to judge because it depends yeah. on whether the movement carries on or We'll see, for instance, what impact the the speech of Nasrallah will have, whether the the movement declines. We'll we'll see this weekend how it it will go. Do you think, though, that
0: it could be this is a movement that is open to being co-opted? I mean, these these demands are really far-reaching, it seems to me. So is this something you can see, a co-optation rather than, say, calling in the army and security forces to put them Um, down?
2: No, I can't see how the movement could be co-opted by any of the uh, existing, uh, I mean, the components of the ruling uh, class in Lebanon. Uh, they're all discredited. And again, I mean, this is uh, very clear. That this, this discredit is really uh, uh, general law. So I can't see how they could co-opt anything. And uh, um, that's why actually the, the, the head of Hezbollah is almost threatening in his opposition uh, to the movement. He uh, threatens of, of even civil war. You know, he says if you carry on like this. So this this is a very a very uh, uh, very tough, very very dangerous also kind of threat. You know, and uh, but but that's what you have. That's the, the, the key risk. The key risk is is uh, some escalation of violence. We have seen beginnings of that, and uh, that's my major fear. Would be would be uh, would be this. Uh, uh, so, you know, you you create violence by by uh, um, bringing your thugs to to clash with the, the the protesters and things like that, and create a situation. Uh, which uh, in which uh, the some kind of army intervention or whatever becomes required. You, you can imagine an, uh, a scenario like that if the movement uh, carries on and uh, radicalizes.
0: Can I uh, ask you one final question because we are almost out of time and sure. I know you want to continue that and you probably can On the final question, uh, Gilbert Ashkar, but I wanted to know if you could sort of summarize super quickly the uh, left force or the forces on the street that could coalesce to form some maybe even United Front kind of operation? Do you see anything like that? Who are these people and what other than, you know, ousting the government? Do you see any other sort of pattern of demands?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, as political forces, you don't have much. I mean, there's not much remaining of the left. The left has been very much weakened over the last uh, two decades in Lebanon. Um, but uh, what is uh, uh, happening now, and uh, here we can you can see how the regional dimension uh, uh, is important. There are people who are attracted uh, or in, uh, inspired by the Sudanese uh, uh, uprising and the model that it provided, uh, the model of leadership that it provided. The, the Sudanese uprising. Uh, in the sudanese uprising a key force a key uh, a, the, the key leadership of 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 of, uh, of the movement has been uh, the sudanese professionals association, which is an associate, an underground association of uh, of professionals uh, doctors journalists and the like uh, which uh, then developed uh, with the uprising into a much larger a coalition of, of unions, uh, workers' unions, uh, key sectors of the working class uh, have has become involved and all that. And the, 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 the idea of doing something like that is pursued by some people. And you've had already some uh, uh, movements among, uh, for instance, university professors, uh, engineers and the like. So there are sectors who are trying to organize and to, to, with the aim of creating a civil society, uh, grassroots uh, representation that could be, well, provide the movement with a leadership.
0: That's perfect, and we've run out of time. And I want to thank you so much for staying up and and giving us this overview and analysis of, I guess, what we're calling the Lebanese October Revolution or the uprising of dignity. And I've been speaking with Gilbert Ashkar, who is a professor of development studies and in international relations at the School of oriental and african studies at the university of london otherwise known as soas and we i made reference to his latest article in le monde diplomatique from june 2019 the seasons after the arab spring will there be a counter-revolution this time in his book morbid symptoms relapse in the arab uprising published by stanford university press in 2016 gilbert ashkar thank you so much for joining us today
2: Thank you,
0: Susie. Thank you, and we'll have you back as it unfolds. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.